This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Face the nation after this short break. I just saved hundreds of dollars by switching to Geico. I feel like a whole new person. Disclaimer, you will not become a whole new person. This is impossible. You might be able to join a gym or diet program, buy a new wardrobe, get hair implants, but your DNA and physical form will remain the same. GEICO waives any and all liability if you attempt to become a new person, except a cyborg. If you choose to become a half-human, half-cybernetic organism with lasers for eyes, the GEICO legal team would be cool with that because, quote, laser eyes are pretty sweet. Pew, 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 end quote. GEICO, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Today on Face the Nation... The president makes bold moves that shake up the stock market and the diplomatic world, leaving administration officials to clarify and clean up. Fears of a trade war spiked in the wake of new tariff threats by the president and counter threats by China's leader Xi Jinping. Add to that President Trump's attacks on Amazon, plus Facebook's revelation that 87 million users' data could have ended up in the hands of a firm working for the Trump campaign, made for a wild week on Wall Street. We'll talk to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Overnight, a chemical attack in Syria reportedly kills dozens and injures hundreds. We'll have a report from the region. Maryland's Ben Cardin, a top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, will be here to talk about that and other news. Then we know that we did not do a good enough job protecting people's data. I'm really sorry for that, and Mark's really sorry. Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg goes on a mea culpa media tour prior to CEO Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress on Tuesday. But will saying sorry soothe what's likely to be an extremely contentious hearing? We'll ask Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy what he plans to ask Zuckerberg. Plus, we'll have political analysis on all the news just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. We have a lot to get to today, but we begin with that chemical attack in Syria. Overnight in the city of Douma, the last rebel-held town in the area just outside Damascus, at least 40 people have been killed in an alleged chemical attack. We turn now to CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams in Istanbul. Holly, at this point, what can you tell us about the attack? Well, Margaret, the videos emerging from this alleged chemical attack uh, on Saturday evening show people who appear to be dead, but with no obvious wounds to their body. Survivors seemingly struggling to breathe, especially children, and being hosed down with water as if to remove a a substance uh, from their skin. We should stress, though, that we cannot independently verify any of these videos, and we cannot confirm that a chemical attack has, in fact, taken place. Survivors, though, reportedly smelled of chlorine. It's a chemical that can be deadly when used in enclosed spaces. Now, the Syrian regime via the state media has denied any involvement in this alleged attack, uh, as has its ally, Russia. 
we know Defense Secretary Jim Mattis had said last month that it would be unwise for Assad to use weaponized gas, and the Pentagon had prepared military options to respond. But is there any indication in this case what kind of attack this could have been? Well, Margaret, um, around a year ago, uh, there was a large-scale chemical attack on the town of Han Shaihun in northern Syria that killed scores of people and did draw a U.S. response, missile strikes on a Syrian regime airbase. There's an important distinction, though. Uh, that attack was found to have used sarin nerve agent. So there are some important questions here. Will this be confirmed to have been a chemical attack? And if chlorine was used, uh, a chemical that is thought to have been used pretty widely in the Syrian conflict, will that draw an international response? Thank you, Holly. A senior administration official tells us the U.S. is near certain that this was the regime but cannot be definitive and said a U.S. response is also, quote, near certain. It is worth noting that the Russians have previously vowed to shoot down any missiles the U.S. fires at the Syrian regime. President Trump tweeted this morning, many dead, including women and children, in mindless chemical attack in Syria. Area of atrocity is in lockdown and encircled by Syrian army, making it completely inaccessible to outside world. President Putin, Russia and Iran are responsible for backing animal Assad. We turn now to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who joins us from Los Angeles. Uh, Good morning, Mr. Secretary. As a cabinet official, what can you tell us about a potential Trump administration response to Syria? Good morning. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Uh, We'll be reviewing the situation later today. I expect to get an update from the national security team. And uh, as you've pointed out with the president's tweet, uh, this, this appears to be another horrible example of the Assad regime. Uh, on, and just incredibly targeted. And a military response is potentially on the table? I can't comment on what our response will be or won't be, but uh, I expect to get an update later today from the national security team, and I assure you they will be reviewing with the president all different alternatives. Sure. On, on the issue of China, you said on Friday there is the potential of a trade war. How should Americans prepare for that risk? Well, actually, I was very clear on when I discussed, I said our our expectation is that we don't think there will be a trade war. Our our objective is to continue to have discussions with China. We want to have free and fair reciprocal trade. We're just looking for our companies and our workers to have a level playing field. And right now, we have about 500 billion of goods that we buy from China, and they buy about 135 billion from us. So this is one of the single biggest opportunities for America. American companies and American workers if we have free and fair trade. And that's what the president wants. So I don't expect there will be a trade war. Uh, It could be, but I don't I don't expect it at all. But the president is willing to make sure we have free and fair trade, as you've seen his tweet already this morning. And again, he has a very close relationship with President Xi and uh, we'll continue to discuss these issues with them. Well, the market certainly reacted strongly to the even the acknowledgement of the potential risk here. Uh, The president, as you said, is tweeting this morning that China will take down its trade barriers because it is the right thing to do. Mr. Secretary, has China given any sign of concessions since Friday? It would be inappropriate for me to to comment on what our back-channel discussions are. Well, what uh, is the president referring to, or is he just striking an optimistic tone based on his friendship? 
Uh, again, I, I, I don't want to comment on specific discussions and where they stand. What I, what I will emphasize is that th- this is really our objective is free and fair trade. We've been talking about this for the last year with them. It's actually just about a year anniversary since the president's uh, meeting at Mar-a-Lago. And I think the good news is President Xi and President Trump have shared with the economic teams, we have a common objective to make sure we reduce the trade deficit. But President Trump is prepared to defend U.S. interests. But, sir, because you know this has caused such nervousness in the markets, which will be reopening overnight, has there been any progress so far? Again, we've, we've committed not to comment on specific conversations, and we're not going to update specific conversations and what they are and when there is progress and when there isn't progress. You'll know when we reach a deal there's progress, and, and that's our objective. So, you know, the markets have had a lot of volatility in general. Uh, the market is still up a tremendous amount since the election. And what we should be really focused on is the strong economic growth. The tax plan is kicking in. Our regulatory relief is kicking in. Trade has always been the third part of our agenda. And right, and, that, the and that's hun- why there's concern that this uh, this dispute could disrupt that economic growth that you're talking about that Republicans plan to run on in November. Uh, that's true. But again, let me just put this in perspective. It's only $135 billion of goods in a $20 trillion economy. And if we can open up their $10 trillion economy for us to compete mm-hmm. fairly, this is one of the single biggest opportunities long term for U.S. companies. So whatever happens in trade, uh, I don't expect it to have a meaningful impact on our economy. And the president has said sectors like agriculture he's prepared to defend. I want to ask you as well, but your colleague, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, the president said he's doing a great job, seemed to give him a pass on some of these questions about uh, potential ethics violations. Is it the official position of the administration that all of these criticisms are simply political attacks? Well, I think, as the president said, Scott has just done a, a fantastic job on policy. And and again, the president believes in clean air, clean water. He believes in proper regulation, just not over-regulation. And and we're determined to be energy independent. That is one of the most crucial long-term issues for the United States. And as it relates to the specifics of of Scott's situation, I can't comment on them, but I'm sure the president's reviewed it. Uh, You're sure he's reviewed it? Has he come to a conclusion? He, He did acknowledge that he was looking into these potential violations. Um, again, I think his tweet speaks for itself. So that's maybe? Uh, again, I haven't had any direct conversations with the president on this. I've obviously had a lot of discussions with him on trade in the economy. But uh, I know he's very supportive of Scott Pruitt's uh, positions and what he's done there. Tremendous progress. All right. Mr. Secretary, thank you for waking up early on the West Coast to join us. Thank you very much. We turn now to a top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Maryland's Ben Cardin. Uh, Welcome to Face the Nation. The president said that there would be a big price for this chemical attack in Syria, and he called up Vladimir Putin by name for backing the Assad regime. Uh, In your view, would a military response be justified? Margaret, first, it's good to be with you. Uh, Clearly, there needs to be a response. There needs to be an international response. This is against international norms. A military one? Well, first and foremost, um, President Assad needs to be held accountable for his war crimes. 
Uh, Senator Rubio. He hasn't been in the seven years of this war. Well, Senator Rubio and I have introduced legislation. It's passed our committee that would hold uh, the evidence accountable. We need to make sure that, that there is a proceeding started by the international community to hold them responsible. This is not the first use of chemical weapons. Secondly, Congress passed very strong sanctions against both Russia and Iran. Uh, they, the, the Syrian regime under President Assad cannot exist without Russia's support and the, uh, the activities of Iran. Uh, the United States, the international community, need to take action against Russia and Iran for what they're doing in Syria. So we need to take a pretty strong response for, for another use of chemical weapons. Are there any briefings planned with the administration, and do you think a military response is, is legally justified? Well, I hope there will be a briefing. Uh, Congress returns tomorrow. I hope that we will get a full briefing on the use of these chemical weapons. Unfortunately, there's not a lot known because the Syrian regime has closed the area. So we, we're not going to have the direct information. So it'll be challenging for us to know. Uh, everything points to that this was uh, controlled by President Assad and uh, the, uh, again, violation of international norms, and there needs to be an international response. On Russia, uh, you commended the president for his sanctioning of these Russian oligarchs and other high-ranking officials. These include Putin's own son-in-law and, and former bodyguard here. But you did criticize the president for not acting faster. What do you think these punitive actions, what's the effect of them? Well, it's been a long time since the president, since the Congress passed the sanction bill against Russia, passed by 99 percent of the votes in Congress. Uh, the president was very slow to act. What, what I think our main complaint, going against the oligarchs was very important, a very important sanction. I, I really applaud the people in the State Department and in Treasury for, for taking this action. What we didn't hear when these sanctions were imposed was the president of the United States saying this is the policy of our country. I was pleased that his tweet in regards to the Syrian issue, the president mentioned Mr. Putin. But he by had, name. By name. That was a significant change. But he has not done that in regards to the sanctions imposed against the oligarchs. And he certainly has not done that in regards to Mr. Putin's interference in our own country. Uh, you helped author a law that provides oversight for the nuclear deal with Iran, along with your colleague, uh, Senator Corker, who has said on this program he expects the president to withdraw next month uh, from that international agreement. Do you agree with Senator Corker? Well, I think both Senator Corker and I agree it'd be a mistake for the president to withdraw from the Iran agreement. If the United States violates the agreement, we are isolating America, not Iran, from the international community. By all indication, Iran has not violated the agreement. Yes, I disagreed with the agreement from, from its beginning, but this is an agreement. Iran's complying with it, and the United States would be marginalized by withdrawing from the agreement. So I hope that the president will recognize that we need to work with our European allies to make sure we're in lockstep uh, against Iran. Mike Pompeo, his confirmation hearings will be this week uh, as he goes up for this job of being Secretary of State. You voted against him when he stood up for mm -hmm. the CIA director position. Uh, are you going to support him this time? Well, I've had a chance to talk to him briefly by phone. He'll, uh, we'll have a meeting on Tuesday. And then, as you know, the committee is holding its confirmation hearings uh, this Thursday. So this is going to be a very busy week for Mr. Pompeo. I'm looking forward to asking him a lot of questions. I want to make sure that he will stand for the values of America, good governance, democracy, anti-corruption. 
and, and use diplomacy as the head uh, diplomat if confirmed. And I want to make sure he'll be an independent voice in the Oval Office with the president. So you're open to voting yes this time. We're going to wait to see how this week goes. Uh, obviously, I have many questions. I also want to ask you about another committee you're on uh, as it relates to the environment. A lot of questions about Scott Pruitt, the yes. EPA administrator. There's some speculation that the president, even if he wanted to get rid of him, which he's made clear he doesn't at this point, uh, that he'd have a really hard time finding someone and getting him confirmed yes. for that role. Do you agree? I think it's be challenged. There's so many positions open right now in the administration, and there's so many weeks left before we get to the midterm elections. I think it's going to be a challenge for us to get uh, a cabinet-level positions confirmed, particularly one at EPA. Uh, my main complaint against Mr. Pruitt, Pruitt was his policies, his environmental pro- uh, policies. These ethic issues need to be resolved. They need to be resolved in an open manner, and Congress has a role of oversight. So, do you, you don't think he should be fired over these ethics? No, I, I didn't say I, that, that's a decision that the president's going to have to make. This is a cabinet-level position. It's up to the president of the United States. I think what Congress's appropriate role, of course, during confirmation, uh, and we don't have a confirmation process on this, but the oversight of his ethics issues are certainly within the realm of Congress. All right. Senator Cardin, thank you very much for all of your insights. We turn now to Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. He'll be one of those questioning Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg on Tuesday. Welcome to Face the Nation, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Facebook has acknowledged that some of its search tools were used by malicious actors to obtain information and Mm. also that 87 million users had private information shared with other organizations without their consent. What do you need to hear from Mark Zuckerberg? I don't want to hurt Facebook. I don't want to regulate him half to death. But we have a problem. Um, Our promised digital utopia has minefields in it. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg has not exhausted himself being forthcoming. We had one hearing. Mr. Zuckerberg sent his lawyer, very bright, very articulate, uh, could talk a dog off a meat wagon, (laughs) but he didn't say anything. (laughs) And uh, uh, my biggest worry in all this, and I have many, many questions, Mr. Zuckerberg, But my biggest worry with all this is that the privacy issue and what I called called the propagandist issue are both too big for Facebook to fix. And that's the frightening part. Too big for Facebook to fix. Does Mm -hmm. that mean that lawmakers like you need to seek regulations to fix it for them? It may be the case. I would rather do it with Facebook and the other social media platforms. Look, we've got to talk about the initial bargain. Um, is Is it fair for me to give up all of my personal data to Facebook and apparently everybody else in the Western Hemisphere in exchange for me being able to uh, see what some of my high school buddies had for dinner Saturday night. Um, who, who owns my data? Do I own it or does Facebook own it? Um, the, the service agreement with Facebook, mm-hmm. it's written in Swahili. <laughs> Nobody understands it. Um, should I have the right to to opt in as opposed to opt out, put the burden on Facebook? Should I have the right to erase my data? Should I have the right to uh, demand that Facebook get my permission before it sells the data? Um, we all know that poison is being spread on social media, not just Facebook. How are we going to stop it? And by the way, while we're talking about that, what's poison? Mm-hmm. First Amendment concerns. 
I mean, the, th this, the, but what, this is these it, are very deep issues, and they're bigger they than Cambridge Analytica. Are. They they absolutely are. But but some would say, look. Is it really something that Facebook needs to police themselves or should Americans essentially have known better in that they're putting that private information out there? Facebook knows more about its business, its algorithms, its methodology than any of us in Congress do. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that Mr. Zuckerberg will, will come to the table and say, OK, he, here are the problems. Here's some suggested solutions. Let's talk it through together. But, but you know, um, some people respond when they see the light. Others have to feel the heat. And these issues are not going away. And let me say it again, I do not want to hurt Facebook. It's done a lot of good. But how do we preserve the good things about Facebook while mitigating the obvious uh, 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 detrimental uh, effects of it? It, it's, it is a minefield in many respects. Facebook already said ahead of this hearing that mm -hmm. they're going to start disclosing, disclosing to its users whose information may have been, uh, they don't like the word breached, but shared with others. And they're also talking about now requiring buyers of political ads to confirm their location and identity and display labels uh, saying that these were paid for ads. What do you think of that kind of proactive action? I think it's a start, but the... Uh the first question that Mr. Zuckerberg needs to ask is, does he really know who's running ads on his, on his platform? He doesn't. Um, they, they, Facebook's lawyers said they have 500,000 unique advertisers a month. I think that's probably wrong. It's probably much more. I don't think they know who's running ads on, on, and, and issue campaigns. Um, we need to talk about how we're going to find out. And again, you're going to get off into quickly into First Amendment issues as well. Right. I, I don't want Facebook to to censor what I can see in all respects, but I do want them to stop the fake news. I do want them to stop, stop people from uh, running advertisements on Facebook that in, encourages the genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in, 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 uh, in Burma. Um, these, are, these are deep issues. They're not going to go away, and we're not going to conclude this in one hearing, and I hope that Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg will be forthcoming and frank forthcoming and frank. And if he's not, what happens? Well, uh, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. I do not want to regulate Facebook mm -hmm. half to death. But we do have two major problems we've discovered. One is the privacy issue, and the other is the propagandist issue. Now, Facebook needs to talk with us, frankly, about how we can fix that. And if it doesn't know how to fix it, which is my biggest worry, it needs to be, uh, be very frank in that regard, too. I want to also ask you about EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. The president seems to have given him a pass in a tweet yesterday <clears throat> signaling that he's okay uh, with some of these reports about government spending run amok and these other allegations of ethical violations. What do you think? Well, now, Mr. Pruitt and other members of the president's cabinet, I would say uh, ethics matter, impropriety matters, the appearance of impropriety matters uh, to the extent that you are. Stop acting like a chucklehead. Stop the unforced errors. Stop leading with your chin. Uh, if you don't need to fly first class, don't. Don't turn on the siren on your SUV just to watch people move over. You represent the President of the United States. All of this behavior is juvenile. It's distracting from the business uh, that we're trying to do for the American people. Should he keep his job? 
And, well, that's going to be up to the president. I know what I would do if I were Mr. Pruitt. I would call a press conference tomorrow. And I would say, okay, let's talk about your criticisms of me. Well, he did he, give he, some interviews yeah, this week. Yeah, I, but I, I would do a, a full-blown press conference and say, okay, here, here are your criticisms. That's fair. I'm going to stop doing it. Here's what I think is not fair. But, but the, the, these people are hurting the president. And, and I'm not saying he's not a good person. But but the appearance of impropriety matters, and you can you can you, you so can't put lipstick for on this you pig. though. That the president, uh, the president, and certainly Scott Pruitt have alleged that all of this is just politically motivated by environmentalists who don't like his deregulation. Some qualities. of it is, but all of it isn't. I mean, he he either travels with twenty security folks or he doesn't. He either flies first class every single time or he doesn't. Um, I don't know whether the allegations about his apartment are true or not. They don't look good. Why do you want to, in, in his position, why do you want to rent an apartment from a lobbyist, for God's sake? Stop leading with your chin. Now, these are unforced errors. They're stupid. There are a lot of problems we can't solve. Mm -hmm. But you can behave. I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate, Mr. Pruitt, but doggone it, he represents the President of the United States, and it is hurting his boss, and it needs to stop. Senator Kenny, thank you for coming on Face the Nation. We'll be back in a moment. If you like this podcast, check out what other podcasts are available from CBS News Radio. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Every week, an extended conversation at a restaurant in our nation's capital with newsmakers like the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt. Climate's changing. We contribute to it. I've said that a thousand times, okay? Chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez. That's what this president has always been about. He divides people. Samantha Bee, our very special guest. I think I just realized my voice is really boring on podcasts. I'm sorry, Subscribe now for a new podcast every Friday morning. The Takeout with me, Major Garrett. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. We want to take a closer look now at the Facebook data story, how it's affected users and how the company is responding. To help us do that, we're joined now by Wired Magazine editor-in-chief Nicholas Thompson, who's also a CBS News contributor. He's in New York this morning. Uh, good morning to you, Nick. This is a very confusing story for a, a lot of people at home. Uh, what is the main question that Mark Zuckerberg is being called before Congress to answer? Well, the most important thing he's going to answer is, what happened to people's data? What happened with Cambridge Analytica? What are you doing to make sure that doesn't happen again? He'll go up there, he'll apologize, he'll explain it, and then what's going to be interesting is what comes next. Is it just retributions, or do we actually try to figure out good tech governing policy? Because we haven't really had a debate about how to regulate these companies in 20 years. Well, that's what Senator Kennedy was just telling us. He's going to be one of the questioners. He said uh, Facebook may be too big to fix, meaning yeah. the government may have to regulate it. What does that look like? Yeah, and I do think there is going to be regulation coming, right? And there's certainly some regulation that would be very sensible, right? You should certainly regulate advertising on Facebook, political advertising on Facebook, so it meets the standards of political advertising on other media platforms. That's a good idea. You should also probably have some kind of structure for privacy regulation, right? You could model it after what has been done in Europe to make sure that people have control over their data and that the companies have requirements to make their privacy settings very clear. That would be a good idea, too. Once you get beyond that and you get into specific regulations about speech or you get into specific discussions about antitrust, then it gets very complicated and there's a lot of risk. Well, we've already seen Facebook kind of 
try to get ahead of these hearings. Uh, tomorrow they're going to disclose to users if their data was shared, breached, whatever word yep. you want to use. Uh, they're also talking about uh, forcing some disclosures on political ads in terms of where that person or entity was located and, and who paid for the ad. Is that enough to sort of soften the blow? I think it is enough to soften the blow. It's probably not enough overall. There does need to be some government regulation that goes beyond what Facebook is doing. Facebook has announced about 20 policy changes in the last few weeks. They're very good changes. They do protect you. They do open things up. They will make political campaigns clearer and fairer. But there also is a role for Congress, both in setting specific regulations and also setting some guidelines for Facebook to follow in the future. Is there truth to what Senator Kennedy was was telling us that uh, Facebook doesn't even know who's running ads on Facebook? Is there truth to that? Do they really not know? They know a lot about users. They don't know everything about who is running ads on Facebook, right? They didn't know that the IRA, the Russian propaganda group, was running ads on Facebook because the IRA had hidden its purchases. But I think he was overstating that a little bit. Facebook does have a good sense, right? People enter their financial information. They buy the ads. Facebook now has lots of people monitoring them, looking Mm -hmm. for suspicious behavior. They've set up their AI systems to monitor for uh, suspicious behavior. So it's an overstatement to say that they don't know who's advertising. But there are certainly certain things they don't know. Well, they seem to be playing catch-up, though, because none of these things stopped those buyers from that Russian propaganda unit in the 2016 election. Yeah, so Facebook was caught totally unprepared during the 2016 election, and they are still paying for that, right? They stuck their heads in the sand. They were not paying attention to the fake news, to the propaganda operations. Since then, though, they have adjusted their algorithms. They have hired tons of people. They are working very hard. So... The bad guys are going to work harder at hiding what they do, but Facebook is also going to work much harder at uncovering what's going on. So the odds that we have as much manipulation, as much chaos in 2018 or 2020 that we had in 2016, I think it's small. I think Facebook is getting a handle on this. But yeah, you're totally right. They were absolutely unprepared in 16. Do you think, uh, you've interviewed Mark Zuckerberg, do you think that he he gets it now, that he understands the, the weight of the outrage I think that there's been a real education process for Mark Zuckerberg that began the day that Trump was elected. Because remember, Trump's philosophy, which is somewhat tribalistic, is entirely different from Zuckerberg's philosophy, which is bring everyone in the world together. And so the day after the election, I think Zuckerberg started to realize, wait, did my systems do this? Am I responsible for this? And he's gone through a lot in the last year and a half. And I think you've seen a real education, a real evolution. I mean, he's still making all kinds of unforced errors and mistakes, um, but I think that Zuckerberg is really grappling, and I think he's understanding that this platform that he genuinely thought could only do good for the world actually can be manipulated. And that's the story of the last two years. It's Mark Zuckerberg realizing that the tools he built can be used for ill as well as for good. And that's something he had not realized. Uh, One of his top executives, Sheryl Sandberg, tried to, uh, in many ways, lay the groundwork for this testimony this week. She was all over news networks apologizing on Mark Zuckerberg's behalf and her own. Uh, how, How effective was that? It was fine. 
I mean, she and Zuckerberg have That doesn't been sound very convincing, Nick. <laughs> well, look at the reaction to it. I don't think anybody said, oh, you know, now we're totally sympathetic to it. I mean, yeah. public opinion is still completely against Facebook. I mean, and that is why Congress is going to be out for blood on Tuesday or Wednesday. If you look at the public perception of both Zuckerberg, Sandberg, and also of the company, it's terrible. The stock market is mad. The employees are upset. People are really upset at Facebook right now. So I think she said the right things. I think Zuckerberg has been saying the right things. I thought his conference call with the media the other day went very well. On the other hand, they didn't respond to this crisis nearly as quickly as they should have. And they're still paying for that. And they're still paying for years and years of sins. One of the ironies here is that I think this Cambridge Analytica scandal has been a little blown out of proportion, right? What happened in this specific instant isn't quite as terrible as people make it out to be. And Facebook's not as much at fault as people make them out to be. You're talking about the the data scraping and the the, use by an outside application of this information without the user's knowledge. Yes, that that particular scandal, it's bad. But it's been a little blown out of proportion. On the other hand, Facebook has been violating our privacy and not paying any price for it for 12 years. So in some ways, this is the comeuppance for 12 years of sort of small privacy violations and breaches of trust that Facebook hasn't really been punished for. So they're being punished too much for the specific crime, but maybe the right amount for the accumulation of things over the last decade. It's going to be fascinating to watch, Nick. Thank you very much. We'll be right Thank back. Thank you so much, Margaret. With our Good panel. to talk to you. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. And now for some political analysis. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at the National Review, a columnist for Bloomberg View, and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Julie Pace is the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And we'd like to welcome to the show Tolu Olurunipa to the broadcast. He's a White House reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, A lot to get to, as always, but I want to start on these uh, chemical attacks in Syria. The president's not calling them alleged attacks. He says this is a chemical attack and there will be a big price to pay. Jeff, what does that lead us to? It leads us probably, if if past can predict the future. A year ago, he launched 49 Tomahawk missiles at various Syrian sites. Did not have the desired effect. So it could lead us to uh, another attack by the American military. Uh, It will not lead us to a conclusion or a satisfactory conclusion of the Syrian civil war. Uh, It's very, very late in the process. Assad and his Iranian and Russian allies have basically won this civil war. Uh, It's all over, but the dying, it seems, uh, in this one town. Uh, So I I don't think that the U.S. can do anything to affect the overall outcome at this late stage. Remember, Donald Trump also said just last week, we're finished with Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, Against the wishes of the Pentagon, he said this, by the way. He wants out. So it's, it's an interesting moment to see how far he will go back in. He won't go back in far enough 
to, to make a difference. Right, and, and those U.S. troops, the 2,000 that are there, aren't doing anything against the Assad regime. They're no, fighting. they're there to fight ISIS, ISIS, which he thinks he's won, by the way, and Donald Trump is probably being premature when he thinks that victory is at hand. Well, this is what makes the timing of this attack so interesting, is that it comes days after Trump signaled that the U.S. was getting out. While he's not using a specific time frame publicly, he is privately telling his uh, national security team that he wants to be out by October. That's the exact type of thing that he and Republicans criticized Barack Obama for, saying if you put a timeline mm-hmm on this, if you make clear to the opposition, uh, to our foes, when we're going to be drawing out, they will respond to that. And so we don't know exactly what is behind this Putin, Iran, attack, and, the, and Assad have read, have read what he they said. They know the playbook. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, Tolu, because John Bolton will be the new national security advisor. Uh, this is happening on his watch now. This makes for a tough first day at work. Yeah, Bolton has been a hawk on a number of issues in the Middle East. Uh, including the Iraq war, he's likely to push the president more towards taking action, striking back against the Assad regime, even though the president has seen the Middle East in, in, in the light of it being a hornet's nest that the U.S. should not get involved with because it's this quagmire that uh, does not pr- produce any uh, positive results for the U.S. So the president sort of has this duality where he wants to be, seem very tough. We saw him name uh, President Putin in in a tweet for the first time sort of being critical against President Putin and his role in Syria. But at the same time, the president has said that he wants to get out of Syria. He wants to bring the troops home. And that's clear uh, that Bolton's going to have a tough time sort of making the president have a coherent uh, foreign policy when it comes to an area that he does not want to be in, but he also wants to seem tough. Is there a Syria policy yet? I, I, I mean, is there a Trump doctrine at all? I mean, right. it's, it's, it's difficult to, to know when he surrounds himself with so many different types of voices. He likes to have competing voices around him. Um, and then he does make very impulsive for, foreign policy decisions. It makes it difficult to know whether or not uh, there is an overall strategy behind what he's doing. And Ramesh, I mean, conservatives really cheered the president when he took that action last year, saying, look, he's not President Obama who sets red lines and doesn't act on them. He's, he's set out consequences for crossing his red line. Well, it appears another line has been crossed here. So is it right. he, he trapped himself? Well, there was a split among conservatives, I'd say. I do think that there is a cost that you pay when the president says there's a big price if he doesn't then exact right. that big price. I think it reduces his credibility and it reduces American credibility. But I think there's a real challenge. There's a real question about what the administration does now. And I think people are going to be surprised about John Bolton because John Bolton has never been an enthusiast for interventions for just humanitarian reasons. He's gone sort of back and forth on the Syria question, depending on circumstances. In 2013, he was publicly against President Obama taking military action in Syria, and he said it's a strategic sideshow. So I'm not sure that he's going to live up to the caricature of being kind of a hawk's hawk on all issues. That's interesting. He's going to be in place before we get a secretary of state confirmed. Uh, Mike Pompeo's got those hearings coming up on Thursday. Does that in any way solidify Bolton? I mean, does a few days on the job give him more influence in any way? Well, I think what gives him more influence on the job is he apparently has a very good relationship with President Trump. Of course, other people have started out with a good relationship and seen that deteriorate over time. But I think that this administration in particular, the relationship with the president personally matters a great deal, even more than it does in any other administration. Jeffrey, you had a really interesting interview with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, in in this past week. Now we're going to see his his nemesis of sorts, the emir of Qatar, at the White House meeting with President Trump. Uh, Are we going to see any kind of diplomatic breakthrough on that standoff between the countries? 
No. <laughs> I, 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 I thought that was an easy question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, who, who knows? But uh, it doesn't seem very likely. The hatred uh, between the Qatari royal family and the Saudi royal family is almost as deep as the hatred between the Saudi royal family and the leaders of Iran. Um, they, 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 the Saudis have defined for themselves and for the moderate, so-called moderate Arab wing who the enemies are, Iran, Assad, uh, and to a lesser extent, but still important extent, the outlying cutteries. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it, it's very, very difficult to see Donald Trump negotiating peace between uh, Gulf states. But uh, it's significant. I mean, he stood in the Rose Garden last year and said that Qatar was funding terrorism at the very highest levels, and now he's right. got the head of state coming to see him. Welcome to the Middle East. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the Qatar also is, is home to important U.S. military installations. Exactly. Uh, and the Pentagon obviously wants us to calibrate that relationship like it wants us to calibrate all relationships. And Donald Trump is not an expertise, uh, does not have expertise in calibrating relationships in the Middle East or possibly in many other places. So we'll, we'll see how this meeting goes. But nothing, nothing grand is going to come out of it, I don't think. Tolu, uh, the president will be traveling at the end of this week to South America. Will we see a preliminary trade deal uh, on the NAFTA front, not China, on NAFTA? Yeah, it's not likely that it's going to happen before this meeting or during this meeting. He's going to the Summit of Americas in Lima, Peru. Uh, they're still trying to work out the kinks of a trade deal, but the president keeps throwing grenades into the entire trade relationship uh, by announcing new tariffs, global tariffs, uh, trying to uh, take on China, but at the same time uh, really making a, no, a number of our other allies unhappy when you talk about steel tariffs and aluminum tariffs that hit not only China, but also a number of our different allies in different parts of the world, including South America. Uh, and by sending troops to the southern border, uh, he's sort of inflaming the relationship with our trade, trade partner in Mexico and making it more difficult to have those continued talks and reach a deal uh, during this summit. So it's likely that we're not going to see a deal before the summit. Um, maybe there's some work happening behind the scenes away from the president's Twitter account and away from these very sort of incendiary moves that he's making on the border that can work itself out over the, the weeks to come, but not necessarily something that we're expecting to see in the next few days. Ramesh, can conservatives convince the president to save NAFTA? You know, this administration is full of people who support it, but it also has a lot of people who are against it. It does not speak with one voice on this issue. Trump has given us every indication for his entire adult life that he is a protectionist by conviction. And people have been trying to talk him out of each of the steps he's already taken. So I would not be confident about NAFTA survival. And I think one of the reasons you're seeing the markets react the way they're reacting, it's not each individual tariff that the president has announced is going to be so destructive, but people don't like where this is going and they're uncertain about where it's going. Markets forward-looking indicator and they're betting that this is going downhill. That's right. Julie, uh, a lot of confirmation hearings to get through for this administration. Secretary of State, first one up this week. Does Mike Pompeo make it through? It looks like Pompeo is going to get through. I think Democrats are going to try to make it difficult. Ultimately, I think that he will be confirmed. He was already confirmed for a CIA chief, which tends to make it a little bit easier to get through a second time around. The one that I would really pay attention to, though, is Gina Haspel for CIA, his replacement at the agency. Uh, this is a confirmation hearing that Republicans are uncomfortable with simply for the fact that it's going to raise so many issues around torture, uh, her own past history, and questions about what the administration's policy is toward the types of covert actions that became a really big deal during the Obama administration, but frankly, we haven't heard a lot about. And then 
hanging over all of this is Scott Pruitt, of course. You, one of your guests earlier today was talking about there being limited time left uh, in the legislative calendar because the midterm elections are coming up. Lawmakers don't like to be spending a lot of time in Washington when they're running for re-election. And so you're going to hear Republicans privately telling the administration, hey, maybe you don't want to throw another uh, open, open seat on your cabinet into the middle of this midterm when we already have two uh, pretty difficult confirmations ahead of us. Right. And the VA secretary. And also the VA secretary is, is also in the mix. It's a pretty busy agenda. Again, not something that Republicans wanted to be dealing with in the middle of the midterm cycle. Uh, Ramesh, uh, the president seems to have given absolution to Scott Pruitt in this tweet last night saying, you know, he's doing a great job. He's not concerned about the ethics accusations, at least, of ethics violations. Is it really about that or is it just simply getting somebody else to fill that job would be too tough? Well, there's that. And there's also that Pruitt has very strong support from conservatives who approve of his policy record at the EPA. Um, You combine that with Trump's uh, relative lack of concern for the kind of media ethics firestorm that in another administration would have gotten a cabinet secretary dismissed. And, and I think that Pruitt looks like he's weathering the storm. But if there are more scandals that break, um, that could change, of course. Does that mean that any prospects for a job are over for him? Of course, the president came out this week and said, no, I'm not going to replace Jeff Sessions with Scott Pruitt. Well, I do think that this means that even if that were ever being contemplated, it isn't anymore. I think it is very hard under this circumstance to see Pruitt getting confirmed for attorney general. Uh, Tolu, what are you hearing on that front? I mean, uh, uh, speaking of jobs that don't require confirmation hearings, the chief of staff gig, uh, it seems to be a regular headline that John Kelly is growing frustrated or the president's growing frustrated with him. It'd be news if we got one that said he's happy right now. Um, Scott how- Pruitt might be available <laughs> at any moment. But, I mean, what is the likelihood here that we see that kind of shakeup? Well, we have seen uh, John Kelly's stock drop in the, within the West Wing, within the White House. My colleague reported a few weeks ago that uh, he's, no, he's no longer part a uh, part of very important meetings, very important personnel decisions, phone calls with foreign leaders. President Trump is sort of graded at the fact that John Kelly has tried to enforce so much uh, discipline within the West Wing, not only discipline on the staff, but also discipline on the president, who likes sort of having this freewheeling experience within the Oval Office, phone calls with various friends and and allies, people coming in and out. Uh, John Kelly has tried to crack down on some of that, and the president has not necessarily taken to a lot of the new reforms. And uh, the fact that John Kelly is seeing his stock drop and seeing a number of the members of of, uh, of his staff and a number of the uh, officials within the, within the West Wing more willing to talk to reporters and say uh, John Kelly is no longer uh, the star general that he w- was when he first came into the administration uh, makes it seem like the president may take a move and maybe make a change. But we did see a tweet from the president saying that this was not true and, and not necessarily so, the, the direction of these. But Tilda makes a really important point here that, that I think uh, is important for people watching to understand. It, it's one thing for the president and his chief of staff to have a tense relationship. Trump has a tense relationship with a lot of people in his senior team. Kelly has lost the support of his staff. So he's essentially a man Why? on an island. A large part of it is the way he handled the Rob Porter controversy. Uh, people on the staff felt like he was not being truthful in his account of his own role there. They feel like he uh, has has undermined what they have been sent out to say, either on his behalf or on the president's behalf. So imagine that. You have a, a, a chief of staff in the White House who the president is not happy with and the staff isn't happy working for. That is really untenable. You know, and we're talking also about absolution through tweeting. 
Um, and and the president doesn't have a great record of, of sticking with those grants of absolution. Uh, Reince Priebus is, is a good example, I think. So, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about this administration is that this conversation can be overcome by events during this conversation um, <laughs> because, uh, because he can do anything. The fact that he's sticking with Scott Pruitt is remarkable. The fact that he's tweeting positively about his chief of staff is remarkable. But those things can change this afternoon, and that's the nature of this entire administration. Successful chiefs of staff have tended either to have a strong relationship with the president personally or to have experience in politics and good relationships with Capitol Hill. When John Kelly became chief of staff, people greeted him as an adult who's going to impose order on the process, but he didn't have either of those two qualities, and he still doesn't. And in some ways, some of those things are getting worse, like his relationship with the president. So while he may have imposed some discipline on this process, I'm not sure you can say that he's been a successful chief of staff. Well, what does that do to the rest of the uh, the cabinet and the administration? It's been pointed out to me that because he was a cabinet member and rose to this position, that that has in some ways instilled confidence uh, in his fellow administration members. With a dismissal hurt anyone else? You know, but the bar is always so different in this administration. The Washington Post story that uh, pres- about Kelly that President Trump condemned earlier today was saying that there is less knife fighting and dysfunction now that Kelly is chief of stuff. staff. Okay, fine. Less knife fighting and dysfunction than there was in July of last year. But that's still a lot of knife fighting and dysfunction. And every little thing increases people's worry, increases people's sense. Maybe we should look mm-hmm. for the exits, too. All right. Thank you, all of you. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy, and Maryland Senator Ben Cardin. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.